Go ahead and grab your Bibles, flip to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. We have been barreling through topic after topic with this series, Ecclesiastical Schematics, and we arrive now at the concept of public prayer. And so I'm going to read 2 Chronicles chapter 6. We'll start in verse 12. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. A somewhat lengthy section, but we will work our way through it. These are the words of God. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 12. Then he stood before the altar of Yahweh, before all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had put it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and loving kindness to your slaves who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have promised with your mouth and have fulfilled it by your hand as it is this day. So now, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not have a man cut off from before me who is to sit on the throne of Israel. If only your sons keep their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. So now, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, let your word truly endure, which you have spoken to your servant David." But will God truly dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. You have regard to the prayer of your slave and to his supplication, O Yahweh my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your slave prays before you, that your eyes may be open toward this house day and night, toward the place of which you have said that you would place your name there, to listen to the prayer which your slave shall pray toward this place. And listen to the supplications of your slave and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Listen from your dwelling place from heaven. Listen and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then listen from heaven and act and judge your slaves punishing the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by bringing him reward according to his righteousness. And if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this house, then listen from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you have given to them and to their fathers." When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then listen in heaven and forgive the sins, sin of your slaves and of your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and give rain on your land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is scorching wind or mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel who know his own affliction and his own pain and spread his hands toward this house, then listen from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways all the days they live upon the face of the land which you have given to our fathers. Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, if he comes from a far country for your great name's sake and your strong hand and your outstretched arm, so if they come and pray toward this house, then listen from heaven, from your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, even to fear you, as do your people Israel, and to know that your name is called upon this house which I have built. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, 
by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you toward this city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then listen from heaven to their prayer and their supplication, and do justice. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them over to an enemy so that they may so that they take them captive take them away captive to a land far off or near and if they cause these things to return to their heart in the land where they have been taken captive and return and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity saying we have sinned we have committed iniquity and have acted wickedly and if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been taken captive, and pray toward their land which you have given to their fathers, and the city which you have chosen, and toward the house which I have built for your name. Then listen from heaven, from your dwelling place, to their prayer and supplications, and do justice for them, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. So now arise, O Yahweh God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Yahweh God, be clothed with salvation and let your holy ones be glad in what is good. O Yahweh God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant, David. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Yahweh filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of Yahweh because the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of Yahweh upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to Yahweh, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father and living God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. And Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. A long section, but an important one. Out of all the topics that we have discussed during this series, I believe that this issue of public prayer may very well be the least known and least discussed topics of all of them. Uh, many churches, they'll teach on money, they'll teach on the purpose and the government of the church, uh, they'll teach on the sacraments and so forth, and some may touch on the topic of prayer as it pertains to personal or mental prayer, but not many dive into what we call public prayer. About 150 years after the Reformation began to spread across Europe, there arose a certain group of Christians known as Pietists, who with a distaste in their mouth for the seemingly boring and repetitive corporate worship and liturgy, they largely taught and emphasized more of a personal piety over against the perceived rigidity of Reformation worship. And the result, well, personal prayer became the focus of both in practice and in preaching. This was especially uh, prevalent once the conversionism and the revivalism of American Christianity took root, where the personal piety became the most important aspect of, of your Christianity. And so the Lord's Day gathering, the assembly of God's people, the congregation, the liturgy, all of that stuff just sort of went to the wayside. And many Christians today are caught in the downstream current of pietistic thinking. And because of it, they don't really see any value in public worship and liturgical practices, which is ironic because even if you have lights, lasers, and fog machines, you have a liturgical practice. Yours is just really bad and not really historical by any sense. Thus, these types of Christians, they do not see a need to bother themselves with developing a theology and praxis of public prayer, the concept of public prayer. And in my estimation, this is, this is a grave mistake. Now, 
I am not saying that personal prayer and acts of piety do not matter at all, but I am saying that public prayer is just as important as personal prayer. Public corporate prayer is just as important as personal prayer. Just like public preaching in the assembly is just as important as public preaching in the streets. Uh, preaching is simply preaching, and preaching is to be done in God's church, and it's supposed to be done out in the world. So preaching is simply preaching, yes, and prayer, both individually and as an assembled body, matters. It matters that God's people gather together and pray. The Bible does not make the mistake of theologians by assuming that everything is either a collective expression or an individual enterprise. We put, pit those things against each other. Scripturally speaking, we don't have to choose between the two. We don't have to ask questions like, what's more important, co corporate prayer or personal prayer? What's more important, the collective or the individual? And we don't have to put those things against each other. Both, both matter. In fact, corporate worship dovetails with personal daily worship. If you come in on Sunday to gather with God's people and you've done really nothing to walk with the Lord all week, you know, it's not just magically going to like fix your life, you know. Oh, great, you know, we prayed and we confessed our sins and we sang and we heard from the Word of God and suddenly magically everything is just going to be okay. What we do here should dovetail with what you're doing uh, at, at home. Spiritual food that's provided on Sunday should dovetail with the spiritual food that you are engaged in at home, whether it's book study, Bible study, you name it. Now, public prayer ought to fit with your personal prayer life. Public prayer ought to fit with your personal prayer life. In God's economy, there is an equal balance between our personal lives of holiness, which should be guarded, and corporate lives of holiness. Prayer, as we saw in our confession of faith, is an offering up of ourselves and our desires to God, Psalm 62, 8. In the name of Christ, we pray in the name of Christ, John 16, 23. We do it by the help of His Spirit, Romans 8, 26. With confession of sins, we see that all over the scriptures about confessing our sins, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Daniel 9. And we do it with thankful acknowledgement of his mercies, Philippians 4, 6. So that is prayer. When we did that in our confession of faith element, that is uh, what prayer is. Prayer is an appeal to God. It's an appeal to God. Uh, it's a communication with the Trinitarian Godhead so that we might be shaped and equipped to live our lives for the glory of God. And when we pray, we have to stop thinking like it's a vending machine transaction. And uh, so you just push, put the right input in, the right dollar amount, and then God will just, you know, give you what it is you ask for. Um, prayer, in many ways, is simply us wrestling with God so that we can be aligned to His will. We don't, we don't pray because He's like Santa and we just get what we want if we're a good boy and girl. That's not at all how it works. Prayer is an appeal to God so that we can be shaped for his glory. Prayer is using the breath God gave us to extol him with adoration and reason uh, with him in compliance. That's why our prayer should always be not my will, but your will be done. If you're asking for something, and indeed you should ask, but we, we, you should do that, but we should also know that we want his will to be, to be done. Let's look at our text here. I'm not going to read it again. <laughs> it's a long one. Solomon's dedication of the temple was a dedication of a house of prayer. Hopefully that was obvious when we read through it, and maybe you read through it before today. Um, but it's a house of prayer. It's a dedication of the temple, and prayer is the main focus of Solomon's prayer. And the prayer can be rather easily divided up. In verse 12, we find his posture. What does he do? Twice it's noted, he raises his hands toward heaven. He's on his knees on the platform, and Solomon physically raises his hand toward, heaven, toward the heavens. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2.8, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. 
without wrath and dissension. So the raising of hands is, in, in prayer is biblical. And oftentimes, even in the early church, a prayer could be simply like this, with your right hand up in the air. Um, sometimes you could do, do what Solomon did. Uh, when Moses, when they were fighting, he had his hands up. And remember, he needed help to keep his hands in the air so they could win the battle. There's this idea of shoulder. The shoulder in Scripture is, is a symbol of authority. And when you raise your hands, the authority is submitting to the heavens where true authority comes from. So your hands and your posture, even when we pray here, it would be totally appropriate, indeed biblical, for you to at least raise a hand when we pray. Um, there's, you know, 1 Timothy 2.8, Solomon's example, and others. Now, we find next that Solomon, uh, he was on a bronze platform. He, he bowed to his knees before the assembly of Israel. So everybody's here. That's verse 13. He begins his prayer with the praise and worship of the unique God of all heaven and earth, verse 14. And then you'll know in verses 15 through 17, Solomon's father is mentioned as Solomon invokes the covenant that Yahweh had made with David. 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, the covenant God made with David. David wanted to build God a house, and God said, well, I'm going to build your house, talking about his kingly dynasty. And then it was made known that Solomon would be the one to build the temple, not David. Uh, it wasn't David's to build at this point. So he remembers that. Yes, God, you made a covenant with my father. And I remember what you said. Would you please follow through with, with what you said? And this is why you need to know scripture when you're praying so that you can invoke the promises of God. And it's not like you're reminding God like he forgot you're reminding yourself to invoke the promises. God, you promised that you would be faithful to a thousand generations. Would you please bless our family with this need that we have? So knowing what God has done, like Solomon remembered what God had done with David, he invokes that to bring it forward into the present and say, God, you have promised this. Be faithful to it. Execute justice and righteousness and so forth. So all the, the covenant promise of God is the basis for Solomon's prayer. And that should be the basis of all of our prayers. God's covenant promises. All prayers should be anchored to the covenant promises of God. So if you don't know what they are, well, then we need to go back to the scripture to find out what they are. The temple's structure, it was an incredible feat, uh, hauling in materials from all over the place, built this structure. It was built because of the word of God that came to David, and then it was passed on to Solomon. So when, when they built the temple, it was quite literally an act of obedience to the word of God. It was an act of obedience to the word of God. So the, the theological foundation of this prayer is the covenant mercies of Yahweh, as is all prayer. Because if you think of it, none of us goes to God in prayer and says, God, I deserve this. I deserve this. And in fact, I'm praying to you because I'm a good person. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? But when we treat prayer haphazardly and we don't have a plan, right? If you don't have a plan, it's a plan to fail, that sort of thing. If you fail to make a plan, that, that's what happens in prayer. And if you're, if you're not remembering, wait a minute, I'm, I'm talking to the God of the universe here and I don't even deserve to do this. And I can only do it because Christ has redeemed me. That already sets the tone of your prayer, doesn't it? It already puts you in a place of submission to God, the King. In the rest of the verses, we find Solomon mentioning prayer toward and inside the temple. He keeps bringing this up about people praying in the temple, toward the temple. Um, he prays for himself. He prays for his subjects. Here's who he prays for. He prays for the innocent. It could be somebody, a victim of injustice. You think of our preborn neighbors today, people who are quite literally judicially innocent, and yet they are executed, given the death penalty. The innocent, um, he prays for those defeated due to sin, uh, the addictions, you name it, those who are defeated due to sin, he prays for them. He prays for famine, but he prays for the famine, uh, not that it would come, obviously, but it, that it would go. But he prays for the famine because of sin. And all of these things, he says, yeah, when there's a famine in the land, it's just assumed it's because we've sinned. 
you know, when you look at the economy of America, the first thing you sh I mean, aside from begrudging policies, you should think, yeah, we've sinned. We've sinned. He prays for foreigners, people far off that aren't even a part of the covenant, people who might pray to the temple, and he asks for them to, to, to forgive. Remember when Jesus says on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do? It's that same idea. He prays for Israel's battles. When they go off to battle, he prays that if they, if they lose, it's because they've sinned. So if they've sinned, they need to repent. He prays for Israel's captivity as well. That's the whole section from verse 16 all the way to 39. So each time Solomon asks for Yahweh to hear the prayers of God's people, to hear their supplication, their petitions, their confession of sin and wrongdoing, he keeps saying this over and over. Yahweh, please hear. Open your ears and hear these prayers. But why is he saying this? Well, because any sort of natural disaster, any sort of military loss, a food shortage, it's all a direct result of God's covenantal curse on Israel. This is all Deuteronomy 28, by the way, coming here. And thus, he knows repentance is required. See, public sin, do we have public sins happening in our day? <laughs> a lot of them. Public sin requires public confession and the forgiveness of all of God's people, including the foreigners, including the pagan, including the, you know, the God-hater, it all comes together here in this public prayer, the Solomon issues. Public prayer is, in essence, an act of interposition. Solomon essentially sanctions public days of fasting and repentance. I would love to see that in our, in our nation. Yep, we, we've done terrible, evil, wicked things. The bloodshed is really bad. We need, we need a day of fasting and repentance. And here, no one is exempt from this. There's, there's no one's exempt. Solomon doesn't just focus on the church, though that's important. He actually focuses on the entire world. There's a missional aspect to this public prayer. And, the, and by the way, Daniel does the same thing. Daniel was not one who was egregiously sinning. But in Daniel 9, when he prays, he, he treats himself as though he's in that camp. So when we confess our sins, we want to remember, no, this, these are our sins too. The, 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 the abortion holocaust, that's our sin too. Because we are a part of this nation. And we need to confess it on behalf of even the most ardent pink-haired feminist who wants to spit it and yell at you who doesn't know Christ, who hates him, and who is broken and dead in their sin and trespasses, we want to interpose for them too. Father, forgive her, whatever her pronoun is. <laughs> I'm assuming. Forgive this person, for they know not what they do. That's what public prayer does. Now in the final part, again, Solomon asks Yahweh to dwell in the temple near the ark. That's where he dwelled in the Holy of Holies. He prays for the priests to be clothed with salvation, and he prays that God would cause God's people to rejoice in God's goodness. And he also prays that he himself would be a faithful king. And that's at the end there of chapter 6. And then remember, after, and this is in the beginning of chapter 7, after the prayer, we find that fire comes down from heaven and burns the sacrifices on the bronze altar. What a sight that must have been. Same thing with Elijah on Mount Carmel. Same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. God brings fire down. And then, of course, we see in Acts, where does the fire descend on God's people? Interesting connections there. But after that, Yahweh's glory fills the temple. And the glory smoke was so palpable that the priests couldn't even go in, verse 2. It was just too much, too overwhelming, they couldn't even go in. The only response to such an awe-inspiring action was to fall down on the pavement with faces to the ground, worshiping and glorifying God for his loving kindness, for his faithfulness, and his mercy. Prayer is indeed an act of worship. One thing to note here. In the same passage, which is rehearsed in 1 Kings, Kings was written earlier, 1 Chronicle, and 2 Chronicles was written 
in, in the exile, so it was written later. Chronicles just rehearses where everything went wrong, because now they realize they're in exile, what had happened. But in 1 Kings 6 and 7, it highlights the fact that both Solomon's house, where Solomon actually lived, and the temple are together. In fact, they are both considered the house of Yahweh. And the last time God shared space with man in this way was Adam in the Garden of Eden. The priests served in the tabernacle, but prior to this, no king pitched a tent next door to God's dwelling place. Nobody had done that. Of course, we know Moses went and he spoke with God face to face like a man speaks to a friend. Um, but there was no dwelling there, that only God dwelt there. But now there's this unity here. And the point here is that Solomon, as a mediatorial king, think Jesus, he lives in the Lord's house as an anointed prince. So the throne of God is united to the throne of David through Solomon. So he's God's man. God has set things in motion so that Israel will be light bearers to all of the nations. That's what that means. And what do we find is the central feature of this arrangement? Well, people can pray towards and in the temple, the house of prayer, and God will hear their prayers. Remember Jesus' problem with what they had done with the house of prayer? They turn it into a den of robbers, a place of hypocrisy. It wasn't that they were buying and selling. It's, it was hypocrisy on full display. It's supposed to be a place of prayer, of confession, of sin. It became a house that literally was housing criminals. That was Jesus' ire and anger. But that's what we find here, that God's going to hear the prayers of people. So this God speaks, and this God listens, and the fact that Solomon invoked the foreigners in his prayer tells us of the evangelistic efforts of ancient Israel. And our prayer should include a call for unbelievers to appeal to heaven for forgiveness and salvation. Now, contrasting that long passage, we have three words from 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Paul says, pray without ceasing. The Apostle Paul, you, don't, you can flip there if you want, but 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says rather simply and without a long explanation, he says, pray without ceasing. That's just two words in Greek, by the way. In, in just two words, Paul urges us to consider our daily disposition in life. He says to pray permanently, incessantly, without pause, continually, interminably, unremittingly, perpetually. That's what your prayer life should look like. Unremitting constancy. Every moment of every single day is an opportunity to have a prayerful attitude of dependence on God. Seize it, Paul says. One will be tempted to respond, but I have to go to work. How can I do this? How can I pray without stopping, without ceasing? We're not talking about a cloistered existence like the monastics of bygone ages who sequestered themselves from the world and that was considered the high point of spirituality. If you were a monk or somebody living in a monastery, your job to just sit there and pray all day, every day. Provide nothing for the rest of the world but prayer. Idealistic, somewhat short-sighted, but that's what people thought. But we're not talking about living like that. No, we are talking about prayer in the real world. Prayer in the day-to-day. -day. Prayer in your head while you're at work. Prayer out loud, maybe in the car. But prayer, nonetheless. John Bunyan said it well. He said, listen carefully, because this, this can be confusing, but you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Does that make sense? It's a tricky way to say it, but it's brilliant. You can do more than pray after you've prayed. Like, there are other things you can do other than prayer after you've prayed. 
But you can't do more than pray until you have prayed. In other words, the choice isn't doing something versus doing nothing but praying. Rather, it's praying and acting versus just acting. We should be prayerful people who act in obedience to God and not be flooded with doubt and I'm not sure if I should do this or should I take this job or should I, should I go here and do this. Um, you shouldn't have to worry. You're not pitting prayer against action. We're pitting only acting against prayerful acting. That's the difference. So the Bible commands us here to pray without hesitation. Uh, so never, never resist the urge to pray. Never resist the urge to pray. If you feel the need in that moment to pray, then pray. If someone's pouring their heart out to you and they're clearly having a struggle, pray with them right then and there. Don't even, like, you know, and we all do that. We'll pray for you, yes. Well, make sure you do, because if you say you're going to pray and then you don't, you're the hypocrite. But genuinely, just stop in that moment and say, no, we need to pray right now. And we need to storm heaven with this prayer because my brother or my sister here is, is struggling. So if someone has a need, pray for them right, right then and there, if, if necessary. But you might say, well, what if the, the so-called urge isn't there? Well, then do what the Puritans said. The Puritans said, pray until you pray. Because sometimes we don't know what to pray, and the Spirit groans inwardly, Paul says in Romans 8, and that's okay. But pray until you pray. So how shall we then live? When God's people gather together, they do so to worship God. We have explored aspects of our worship together. Today is no different. When gathered in a public setting, the people of God are told to pray. Praying together, be it on the Lord's Day or a midweek prayer meeting of sorts, praying, you know, if you're out with men, eating, whatever, ladies, fellowship night, whatever, but praying is something God requires of us, and it's a great joy to be able to do so. Well, what exactly are we doing? Well, for starters, we find in places like Jeremiah and even the Psalms that there's actually a liturgical rhythm to our prayer. Just like we, we find the liturgical pattern of worship in Leviticus 9. There's a liturgical rhythm to our prayer. We cry out to the Lord. We cry out to Him. We appeal to Him. Um, we, we confess our sins and we supplicate God for mercy. God gives us forgiveness. He gives us assurance of redemption, assurance of pardon. And following this is usually a hymn of thanksgiving. Psalm 12 illustrates that if you want to look that up later. Solomon's public prayer on behalf of Israel to God has similar tones. Furthermore, we see similar things in the prayers of Hannah. The prayer of King Asa, King Hezekiah, even Ezra, Jehoshaphat. In each of these occurrences, the king, or in Ezra's case, the preacher, he was the preacher priest, but the person leads God's people in prayer. And what are they doing when they lead God's people in prayer? Well, they're petitioning God in response to the word of God. So in preaching, we hear God speak. If you want to hear God speak in your life, look to the word. Read it. And if you need to hear it audibly, God, God speak to me audibly. Okay, then sit and read the Bible out loud. <laughs> right? But that's how we hear from God. But prayer is when we speak to God. But they go together. Prayer itself is most, most naturally connected to the Word of God. The book of Psalms, though admittedly a song book, it's also a prayer book. You can sing the Psalms and we you know, have been doing, doing more of that, but you can also pray the Psalms as well. Consider Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's a prayer. Or how about Psalm 94, verse 22? Yahweh, you are my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. Prayer is praising God. It's not just asking him things, though that's part of it. It's praising him. It's glorifying him. It's adoring him. It's affirming his covenant truth and promises. Do you pray like this? Do we pray like this together in, in the assembly? We certainly try. But whenever confronted with God's word, God's people must pray. 
That's the only response. We hear from God, and we are struck by what we find. We are confronted with who we really are because of who he truly is. And that is why it's so important to know God's word. The the well-known Puritan Matthew Henry, whose commentary is still one of the most popular ones uh, that's out there, Matthew Henry put tremendous effort into knowing and memorizing God's word so that his prayer life would be induced to greater maturity. Prayer is, is breath work. It's taking in the word of God and breathing back out the adoration that God deserves. Um, think of this analogy. Prayer is the bullet shot from the gun of faith. When you have faith and trust in God's word, you fire the gun. gun. That is your prayer. The bullet goes to heaven. It ascends to the glory of God. More modern example, a later, maybe an earlier one would be a bow and arrow. Now, I want, I want you to see that the things we say about public prayer can also be said about personal prayer and vice versa. When we pray, we know from the Bible we must not do vain repetition. Jesus forbids it. Okay? Yammering and trundling along with highfalutin language, with one eye on the congregation or your neighbor, I think it's a poor way to pray. You know, if you're, if you're trying to, I mean, you're, you're coming up with $5 words every every second, and you're just trying to impress the people listening, that's a bad thing to do. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says it very clearly, abundantly clear. Do not be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your heart to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, but you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You don't have to spend six hours in the prayer closet before you go to work. You don't. Your words should be, should be few, he says. Now, verbosity, of course, is ruled out, and so is the type of prayer coming from a heart bent on people-pleasing. Two ditches we have to avoid. So when we pray, both, both together in worship and then separately in our homes, with our families, at your bedside, wherever, we want brevity, but we also want sincerity. God cares about the posture of the heart. If you're praying before a meal, something like, God, thanks, amen. And that's like, that's it. Well, I think you're missing out. But you also don't need a prayer that is 25 pages long and now your corn on the cob has gotten cold before your meal. You don't, we don't want either of those things. Prayer should be appropriate. Prayer should be suited for the occasion. It must not be a sermon Though it may echo one, public prayer is a matter of holiness. It's a matter of respect towards God. It's a serious matter because God is in heaven and we are on earth. Prayer should sound like Bible verses and not a lot of ums and and just and Lord this and Lord that where we put filler words in there. Lord, um, would you just, um, Lord, um, just, just... That's not really engaging your mind. It's defaulting. And if you struggle with that, I would encourage you, you can write out prayers, read the prayers of the Puritans. Uh, you, can, you can read those. That way, it's not just you shifting into neutral and saying, um, so like, God, could you totally like, um, just... <laughs> and you're just filling in words, and it, it's incoherent, and it's like you're on an Instagram reel or something. But it should be informed by the scriptures so that the word of God comes pouring out. That's why I recommend this to you, put out by the Legacy Standard Bible team. Uh, It's just a good resource to help you. Um, Each day you have adoration section, then there's thanksgiving, confession, affirmation. There's the disciples' prayer, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. There's a petition where you can ask God for certain things. Then there's intercession. intercession, then you can pull out your prayer calendar and use that accordingly. And then there's a benediction to send you on your way. It takes less than 10 minutes. And, it doesn't need, and then you can start to immerse yourself in Scripture that way. And it's a, it's a wonderful resource. But we want to know Scripture so we can pray it back to God. That'll prevent us from heretical prayers. <laughs> you know, Lord, I... I I pray for, you know, so-and-so, they're, they're not feeling well, and I don't know if you knew that. 
what are we saying about God's knowledge that he doesn't know things? Yeah. So it helps us with that regard. But this doesn't mean that extemporaneous prayers are entirely ruled out or that you have to always write out your prayers and, you know, one or the other. I do, I do a little bit of both. I do some writing out of prayers and then some are just extemporaneous. But personal prayer and public prayer ought to be informed and shaped and guided by Scripture. And again, that prevents the ums and it also prevents dissertation prayers where you're just praying for hours on end. And our, and our prayers should look a certain way. And if you're taking notes, you'll want to hear this. There's a pattern um, that we find in, in, that's echoed throughout the Bible. We should begin with praise toward God. Your prayers should begin with praise toward God. God, you are infinitely powerful. We praise him. We adore him. And if you can't think of something worthy of this type of praise, then you may not know God. <laughs> we praise you for your sovereignty, your guidance of history. We praise you for the provisions you give us. We, we start with praise. And remember, we're approaching the God of all things. He's the creator and sustainer of every molecule. Your heart keeps beating because of him. So praise him. Second thing is confession. We should confess our sins. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Psalm 51, 1-3. Do you pray like this? The world around us is crumbling, and I am convinced, based on what I see in Scripture, that it is the way that it is because God is judging us, and He is doing something to awaken His bride from her slumber. And prayer is no doubt part of that. That's why we confess our sins together so that we together will be right with God. Third is petition. Praise, confession, petition. We should petition God. Psalm 121 says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to stumble. He who keeps you will not slumber. Ask God for your needs, but do it with childlike faith, not presumptuous arrogance. Childlike faith. Petition him with joy, knowing that he's there to rescue you and deliver you. Align yourself with him and he will deliver. Remember, he is a good father who gives good gifts. So ask him. Ask him for what you need. Fourth, we should offer up thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving to God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. A grateful heart is one that expresses itself in thanksgiving. That's one thing we have to teach our children because we adults struggle with it. A grateful heart is one that expresses itself in thanksgiving. A thankful heart is one that has no time for complaining. Fifth, intercession. We should intercede for others. 2 Thessalonians 2, Now may, the, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. You want to pray for somebody? Pray that. Right? Pray. Lord, I pray to, we're pray, praying for the Garwood family this week. I pray for Pastor Jason that, that you would encourage his heart and strengthen him in every good work. You're just praying scripture. Or so-and-so, I pray for them. Would you strengthen them? Give them sustenance today to obey your word. That's interceding. Make sure you have your church calendar. You're praying for one another. Intercession is extremely important. Sixth, this is we should pray as circumstances arise. So you could call it circumstantial if you want. Circumstantial. It could be a birthday, someone's birthday. Pray for them. It could be an election season. Pray for them. Pray for politicians to repent. Uh, it could be a time of war. It could be a time of repentance. You know, it, there's all sorts of times, whatever the case. Use this as a time to locate your prayer in the moment, asking God to deliver, to bless, to act, 
you know, so-and-so's first day at the new job, well, I pray that you would strengthen them, help them to have clarity of thought and mind. Uh, may they glorify you in the workplace, right? We want to pray circumstantially for people. And lastly, number seven, we should conclude our prayers with joy and faith. A conclusion of joy and faith. Philippians 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Conclude with prayers of joy and faith. Prayer is an exercise of faith in God. It's not an exercise in unbelief. Our, our praying should be expectant. Expect God to act. Not demand, that's different, but be expectant, hopeful, right? It should be sincere. How many times have we prayed and it's like the words are coming out, but our mind is not engaged? It should be marked by benedictory hopefulness. Now, why does public prayer matter? I'm going to give you three reasons quickly and we'll end. Why does public prayer matter? Three reasons. Number one, because Christianity is a public religion. Jesus was crucified in public, so most of what we do is in public, be it evangelism, worship, all of it. Christianity is a public religion. Praying orients our schedule, most certainly, but it orients our posture towards the world, too. We pray not to be noticed by men, as our Lord warns. The Pharisees like to do that. But we do pray that Christ be noticed. Since we have been called to disciple the nations, we have a responsibility to pray and intercede for the nations. I'll tell you this. The maintenance of prayer in the worship of God's people is of the utmost importance. For in it, we are demonstrating our commitment to the Lord. People don't pray because they don't think they need God's help. They think they can handle it. And if the church is not praying for the nations, for our culture, what are we saying? Number two, why, do we, why does public prayer matter? Because Jesus has knit us together to worship him. In Jesus' prayer of John 17, he asked God to strengthen the unity we have with one another and with Christ. He's knit us together to worship him. The unity of the Father and the Son is to be reflected in our unity with one another. He prays for disciples gathered out of the world of evil for their unification in him. Uh, for the continuity of the church, for the holiness of the church. He prays for all of those things because he's knitting us together. Uh, side note, in the Jewish synagogues, the Amidah was basic to worship. It's the prayer of the 18 benedictions. We don't have time to get into that, but it is curious that Jesus built on this. Uh, he offers some changes to it, and to some degree, he reorients it in the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer. Um, public prayer was always and has always been an important aspect of the life of God's people, but especially in early ancient Christian worship. The Amidah means standing, and usually those prayers were done while the participants were standing up. And it was a key part of synagogue worship. But the point here is that God's people worship together. There's a knitting that's going on by the Holy Spirit when we pray in our call to worship, our confession of sin, our prayer of illumination before the sermon, our pastoral prayer after the sermon, our prayer of consecration before communion. We're, we're, we are drawn together. We ascend to the throne together and we offer up ourselves to Christ together. And thirdly, because Christ, why is public prayer important? Because Christ, excuse me, because the church will suffocate unless it aligns with the breath of God. The church will suffocate unless it aligns with the breath of God. The breath of God came into Adam, and it is the Holy Spirit wind that came into the church. Our sustenance day to day comes from the Spirit's work of breathing new life into our souls. This weird thing that happens in John 20, verse 22. Jesus says to receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. And I say, like, why is that in the Bible? It's nowhere else other than an Adam, but it's a reference to him and being a new Adam, uh, 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 giving the church that extended authority of Adam. He breathes on them. So when we pray, we align ourselves with the breath wind of God, the Holy Spirit. 
In prayer, we take up the shield of faith. In prayer, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. In prayer, we find forgiveness of the cross. In prayer, we offer up the fruit of faith. And in prayer, we interpose on behalf of the world, just like in the Amidah. Prayer is the lifeblood of the church. It's the lifeblood of the church, honestly. Show me a church's commitment to prayer and worship, and I'll show you how serious they are about the gospel, about holiness, about worship. Learning to pray is integral to holiness. Praying together as God's people is integral to the mission of God. And when praying, our minds are intentionally engaged and our hearts are intentionally poured out. So when someone is leading in prayer, you must consciously join with him and pour yourself out as well. And you haven't repented in prayer if you haven't shed a tear. You haven't glorified God in prayer if you haven't cried out to him in faith. Thomas Watson said, Prayer is the arrow and faith is the bow by which our requests go up to heaven. A church that prays together with all earnestness and sincerity of faith is a church that God will hear and answer. So I'm challenging you today, cross and crown, brothers and sisters, prayer is our great privilege. And and to speak to the God of the universe is is a great joy. And we should know that prayer delights God. He loves hearing from you. Children, same thing. He loves hearing from you. God loves it. And those who are captivated by the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ are those most eager to pray, most eager to be a conversant with the Lord who purchased their souls. So pray until you pray. Pray for one another. And now we'll turn to prayer. Father in heaven, we are absolutely grateful by your sovereign pleasure. We're grateful for what we find in your word. We are thankful that you have given us your word, that we can read it, we can understand it. And we pray and ask that you would teach us to pray, just like you taught the disciples. Help us not to be people who are prayerless, who think of it as something that we go to last as though it were the final straw. Help us to see prayer as the integral aspect of worship that you have required of us. And help us to see that it's just simply a joyful thing to be a conversant with you. So may your spirit humble us and help us to be men and women and children of prayer. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.